Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I just found this. Do you know this record? Ben, ben Sidra. I remember I Ben lead a life. Yes. He's gone. Did you see him? I think I saw him. But am I imagining this? At the Farnham Maltings? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. At the Farnham Maltings. No, it's possible. He's very kind of jazzy, you know, yeah. jazz funk. Briefly a member, I think, of the Steve Miller band. Yes, in he their, was. In their early days. And... Uh, I really like this record. I've got a few Ben Sidran records. And the reason I got it out was, it's, it's a reminder of the days, 1972, I think it was, when you could, you could decide that your album cover was going to be your bare foot. Your bare foot sticking out, out the back of a car, car. window. You know, it, and implying what, though? Implying really what? That you're, that you're uh, up to some kind of hanky-panky on the back seat? Or no, possibly. I'll just, I'll just, I don't give a hoot. I, th- I would have thought that's more like Yeah, it's my foot. But I tell you, it's my foot. I'll do what I like with it. Yeah. i tell you what it reminded me of, and, it, and uh, I don't know if you've got an equivalent. I think this is on the Blue Thumb label. Uh, and I've decided, actually, Blue Thumb were my favourite label. You know what I mean? Not in the sense that they that they produce loads of hits or anything like that. But, you know, there are always just certain labels, I find, that you really warm to. And I've always found... Who else was on it? Well, things like Dave Mason was on Blue Thumb. Oh, yeah, Thumb. traffic. The yeah. Crusaders were on Blue Thumb. I think Dan Hicks and his hot licks in the early days were on Blue Thumb. I think they were. Well, I ought to know because uh, I've got nearly uh, all their albums. Okay. I'll go and there, there was a very cool label that never had a golden touch at all. But I just really like the idea of a label called Blue Thumb. And whenever I, I see a Blue Thumb record, I tend to get it. And so, you know, Ben Sidram may never have hit the heights, but, you know, at least we're talking about him, right? We're talking about him now. And they may not have had the commercial nows if the kind of people that they, they, they signed were Ben Sidram and Dan Hicks. Oh, absolutely. Never, yeah. never destined for anything their name written in, 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 in lights, really. But, but, we, uh, but remember, we love them. We remember them fondly. We do. Okay, the, the Stackwaddy game, who's going first? Shall I go first? Go on. All right, Dave, let me paint a picture. You're at the Great Western Rock Festival. Great Western Express, it was called, actually. It was in, in Lincoln, 
1972. I was there, actually. <laughs> you've probably just seen The Beach Boys. You may have seen Wishbone Ash. Um, you've seen Monty <laughs> Python's Flying Circus. Right. Obviously, you've seen Rory Gallagher. You've been uh, you've been uh, cavorting in the foam machine, and you're tempted by the tent, the marquee that's calling itself the Giants of Tomorrow. So it's, it's <laughs> putting on rock. Was that there really yeah. was one? Was oh yeah, there, there was. was. Oh yeah, it's not real. Oh yeah, oh, they had a Giants of Tomorrow tent, oh, and that's where the bands were playing that they imagined would be headlining into yeah, yeah. this time. Or they'd be conquer. They would conquer the world. Now, six of these groups, uh, I'm saying, played at the Giants of Tomorrow tent in 1972, although one of them is fictitious. Okay. Five of them are real. Okay. Can you spot the rogue entry? Okay. There's uh, Byzantium. Yeah. Tea and Sympathy. Yeah. Narwhal. Yeah. Jade Warrior. Yeah. Spread Eagle. Yeah. And magic carpet. Shall okay. I shall I recap? You, you I'm gonna get wrong. We're real. Byzantium were real. Carry on. They were. Tea and sympathy? Were real. Very good. Narwhal? Not so sure. Carry on. Okay. Jade Warrior? Were real. Okay. Spread Eagle. Not so sure. And magic carpet. Right, okay. God, I'm going to say your ringer is magic carpet. Okay. No, no actually, they're real. No, okay. The ringer was narwhal, which I thought oh, actually wasn't going to be very convincing. But I was, trying to, I was trying to give a name for them. There was a period around then of those kind of slightly heavy, you know, you know, loons and patchouli oil, kind of slightly metallic. Well, not metallic, but heavy, heavy bands. Yeah, yeah Post-Black yeah. Summer. I thought yeah. narwhal might work. Yeah. Very good. I will, well, you I win. win a rare occasion, I win. Go on, what have you got for me? Okay, we're going to travel uh, to the great nation of Canada. You know, the, Canadian, the Canadians have certain very distinctive national characteristics. They're, they're kind of straightforward, the Canadians. The Canadians are, are modest. You know, the Can Canadians don't put on airs, okay? Which is why yep. that they, when they invent rock and roll bands, they tend to invent them with the dullest, most kind of modest titles that they can possibly come up with and so here yeah, are pretentious isn't it? yeah, yeah here are yeah. five here are five canadian rock bands okay they're from any particular era or just no they go different eras and they all begin with t okay, okay. all yeah. right and so you've got to spot which one okay. was not real this is, this okay. is very good canadian rock bands okay triumph yeah trooper yeah. Truth. Truth, was it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Three Days Grace, The Tea Party. Triumph, Trooper, Truth, Three Days Grace, The Tea Party. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a testing one. The Tea Party, I think, sounds too frivolous, actually. And also, there were various groups called The Tea Party, so uh, I'm, I'm suggesting it probably wasn't them. Uh, Truth... That's possible. Truth and Trooper are possible because they've got that kind of workmanlike, solid, dependable, yeah, unpretentious, no frills thing. Triumph, I think, is too celebratory and not right. Three Days Grace is a brilliant name for a band. Uh, so brilliant. I think it's probably real. And I'm going to go for either Trooper or Truth. And I'm saying it's, I'm saying it's Trooper. Trooper are the other ringers. I win. I win because Trooper were real. Trooper were real. 
Triumph for real, Trooper were real, Three Days Grace are real, Tea Party real, Truth not real. Okay. I just made that That's up. That's a brilliant observation, though. What? Canadian bands. <laughs> they are very, there is something very kind of, it's ordinary, isn't it? No, but it's not. Was there, were there any glam metal bands in, in Canada? I doubt it. Oh, I'm sure there would have been, but they would have been very apologetic glam metal bands, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it's just something about the Canadian uh, Canadian personality and character. Doesn't like doesn't like putting itself forward. Doesn't put on airs at all. That's true. Know? Whereas kind of pop music requires people to put on airs. But you know, that's uh, so that's that that's a stank waddy game for 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 this week. What was what were you saying to me was happening in the natural history? Oh, there was this, yeah, there's a story. I think you saw that news story about um, a guy called Dermot Kennedy, who's an Irish singer-songwriter. And uh, I thought this was really brilliant because I got so much sympathy for all these artists desperately trying to think of interesting ways to carry on on the live circuit. And what he'd done is he'd hired the now deserted Natural History Museum with a theatrical producer and an actor and all sorts of dramatic elements involved and was and put out a live stream performance. I mean, that's, I think that sounds really, really ingenious and exciting. Wouldn't you want to see somebody, I mean, I'm imagining, uh, you know, delivering their songs from beside a, a giant fossilised lizard or a huge display of uh, Patagonian uh, butterflies. I mean, that's, that's good, isn't it? Do you think? I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, don't I think the... I mean, because the... the trouble with live performance on, 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 you know, virtual live performance is it, it seems thrilling initially. You know, you feel that sense of proximity and you feel you've keyed into somebody in their home or whatever. And there's, it, it seems that you're, you're, you're making some kind of connection. And then very soon the visual element of it kind of just dies away because nothing ever changes. And it starts to feel really artificial and claustrophobic and remote. And the idea of somebody, you know, doing something in the Netflix museum, I think it's really good. Obviously, it's charging for it. You know, it's, it's put out all time zoned all around the world and all sorts of commemorative merchandise offered in various bundles and signed vinyl seven inches and you've got a zoom call meet and greet i thought that was pretty ingenious it's good isn't it i i'm very taken by various different elements of this i love the idea of museums and galleries completely no, you could do it in nobody in them yeah you could do it in alan, the alan bennett alan bennett has uh, been repeatedly offered knighthoods and you know, various honors and has turned them down but the only thing the only thing he accepted um was he he was i don't know if he still is but he was a trustee of the national gallery in london and he said he did it because he can do some good but also um the perk was that you got to go in the national gallery before it opened in the morning and you think to yourself my God, that would be exciting, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> you pop in the National Gallery at 8 you o'clock in the morning. to see your favourite pictures. <laughs> and there's nobody else there. There's nobody there at all. That's fantastic. <laughs> and then tomorrow I'm going to go and see, you know, whatever, different painting. I thought, oh, God, what a, I can't imagine a perk greater than that. You know? That is amazing. And, Can uh, I just say, this is going to sound, I'm going to cut in here because it's, it's going to sound awful, actually, but I, I, I was invited to, when Tony Blair was elected prime minister. Right. He had various parties. And I was invited, so me, me and my wife, to one of those parties. And it, 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 it's absolutely incredible. In 10 Downing Street, there's a little room off the top, near the kind of cabinet room where they all meet, yeah, yeah. where there are just paintings. And in that room, and I know because I've shown it, uh, are uh, a turner and a constable. 
So one of them is of Hampstead Heath. And it's just the idea that, you know, you've had a long day in the office. You come back. You know what I mean? You take the top off a can of lager. And you go into your little room, and there is an original constable, the original Turner. Do you think that would be? I think so. I, I, a couple of years ago, I read uh, the guy, the Guardian art critic. They had they had a piece about just pick the best painting in London, what you'd think is the best painting. Yeah. Or did he say in Britain? I can't remember. Anyway, but he he chose. He said the best painting in London is the Turner. Is the is the sorry Rembrandt self portrait at Kenwood House in Hampstead you know, which is on the edge of Hampstead Heath. And it's a kind of museum and you know, place of resort. I've seen it. Yeah. And uh, and I just went, I thought, that's a really good thing. And I went up there quite early one morning. And it's it's never overrun, certainly during school terms and so forth. Not that many people. And I just went in there, in that, went into the room where the Rembrandt self-portrait was, and I was on my own. Oh, on your own? On my own for half an hour. Not even a security person. No, no, there's somebody. No, they they don't. Yeah, I'm sure there's somebody looking at you somewhere uh, behind the arras. But, uh, (coughs) excuse me, I thought that was absolutely such a special thing to be on your own with something like that. And, of course, when those paintings were, you know, any of those paintings were initially done, that's how they would be seen, wouldn't it? You know, they would be. There might be an unveiling, but then they would go to the kind of rich patron, wouldn't yeah. they? Or whoever bought them, and they would stay in their, in their, in their drawing room for years. You know, that's where it were, where they would be looked at. They wouldn't be looked at by loads of people being herded past, thinking as Alan Bennett always always remarks about art. It's very good, but it's very hard on the feet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's great truth about art. Most people looking at art are thinking, oh, I'd love to sit down, aren't they? Yeah. I wish these people weren't all here. I can really understand why if you were colossally wealthy, you would buy individual items of art, don't you think, and have them at home? And after supper, do we all just get a balloon glass of brandy and wander up and have a quick look at the old Modigliani (laughs) up in our our, uh, temperature-controlled loft? Yeah, that rather suggests you've got a house big enough to go for a wander in. (laughs) I'm talking about impossible wealth here. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you'd have the big house as well. Absolutely. So this uh, chap, uh, it must have cost him a pretty penny, Dermot Kennedy. It must have cost him a pretty penny to get in the Natural History Museum, you know, because presumably they have to get security men to open it and so forth. You know, it can't be an easy thing to do. But I like the idea. You see, this is what's interesting. The Natural to... History Museum are quite interested in promoting themselves. I'm sure they are. I mean, no, I, I can't. Just can to remember. remind people of what Absolutely, they've got. Absolutely, they're there. And a whole load of people who've never been remotely interested in them via this guy will suddenly see all the extraordinary things. But, but also they, they, these, you know, attractions that are normally kind of overrun with people have a unique opportunity here to show it in a, in a way that it's not normally seen. You yeah. know, because there aren't tons, tons of people going through there all the time. But, uh, and I think it's in, interesting because what it, it may be beginning to dawn on musicians, professional musicians, no matter how celebrated in this in this current moment, that music alone is no longer enough to get people, particularly to get people to put their hand in their pocket. 
you know, for something that they're not actually going to attend, that suggesting you're going to play a couple of tunes, people think, well, I can do that. That's, I'll catch up with that it's at some point. It's not sufficiently thrilling. It's not, it's no. not sufficiently thrilling. And I wonder, I just wanted to tie this in with uh, the uh, Daniel Eck, who's the, is the, is the boss of Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. Um, recently gave an interview where, where he was, you know, called upon to defend their their ways of paying and so forth. And, and I know I know we get the technicalities of that, but but basically what what appears to happen is that you know if you're Ed Sheeran or you're Taylor Swift or you're Beyonce, you make far more money than anybody's ever made in the past because you're you know. You don't have a you don't have a manufacturing distribution limitation on the number of people you can reach, but if you're kind of in the middle, it doesn't appear to pay you as much as as you might have got out of the old system of somebody giving you an advance to make a record. Um, and people aren't buying that music; they're well, it, well they? absolutely, yeah. Well, they're not yet yeah, the streaming it. So, yeah. But he was saying that. Uh, musicians have to get used to the fact that it's no longer acceptable to just do one, something every few years and here's a product and expect to get the payback from it that they would have got in the past. Which, uh, because that's, mean, the old, that's the old business model, isn't it? You used to go off and make a record and then you tour that record and then you take some time off and live off the royalties of the record. Well, it's, so, they don't exist anymore. You see, I don't think it, it was even... constantly, I don't, constantly I, don't, I don't think it was as simple as that because most of the time they would be living off the advance rather than the royalties. Yeah. So if you have a business... Sorry, I'm going to sound like a LSA lecturer here, which I'm clearly not clever enough to be. But if you've got a business that's based on manufacture and distribution, yeah, here's a record. You can't yep. do it yourself. Yeah. You can't, you can't go in the, you haven't got a studio of your own. You can't afford the musicians yourself. And you need a record company to actually manufacture all that to make it fabulous, to put it into record shops, to advertise it, to try and drive people towards it. That's a betting business. And that works on the basis that. Blue Thumb Records are prepared to give Ben Sidron, whatever it was, $50,000 every couple of years in the hope that they would get back more than the 50000 And in most cases, they didn't get it back. In the overwhelming majority of cases, you talk to people who run record companies, they said 95% of records don't make a profit. Small number make a huge profit. And so everybody down the line did quite well out of the fact that the record companies were prepared to just chunk money at them to make records in the hope that they would turn into that kind of thing. That's gone. So nobody's doing that anymore. Nobody's giving you advance to make your records. You put it out on Spotify and the people find their way to it. Happy days. If they don't, it's going to be hard work. And so what are you saying is the people who are, who are working best on Spotify are people who are doing stuff all the time. They're constantly active. They're finding ways of kind of animating their music, uh, doing stuff around their music. But that's it's, just so true because there's so many distractions, aren't there? If, unless you're constantly reminding people. It, it, I thought it was really interesting that even people like Bruce Springsteen immediately during lockdown started doing performances, started doing radio shows because he was just concerned about, you've got to just remind people that you're there. But here's the question. Here's the question <laughs> that I want to place before the massive. People like, might decide to think about it. Did music, recorded music, 
Was it formerly, formerly a manufacturing business? And is it now a service business? Yeah? Right, so manufacturing yeah. business is you make something. Yeah. Hard for people to make themselves, and they then pay you Go out for some kind of copy of it. A service business is you're there all the time. You're there providing some kind of version of yourself. Yeah? Yeah. And it, it requires a very different kind of personality type than, you know, the manufacturing business fits into the, to the kind of the idea of the, um, you know, the creative artist scribbling away in his garret, in his yeah. garret or, or painting in his garret or whatever. And, you know, has it just, has it shifted in the last 10 years? So it's now a service industry. I don't know the answer to that, but, but I think it's a fair question. It's a fair question. When did musicians first start talking about themselves as creative artists? When? Because well, that's quite interesting. So you look at the, look at someone like the Beatles. The Beatles just thought of themselves as entertainers, didn't they? I mean, they just they, they they made music and they were they were entertaining. They never. I don't remember, apart from two occasions, that might have been after even the Beatles split up. I remember John Lennon talking about help and Strawberry Fields Forever, talking about how they were an element was an element of self-expression in those. But otherwise, at no point did they say, this is me bearing my soul. It was just, here's something we've recorded. If you like it, great. And do, do you know what I mean? I think, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, if you, look in, if you look into the history of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the most distinguished forms of art, you know, <laughs> Mozart or whatever, these people worked for money, didn't really? they? They, yeah. they worked to order. I need a mass for so-and-so's funeral. You know, yeah. there is a, an opportunity for an opera here at the opening of an opera house paid for by a wealthy monarch or whatever. That's what they did. They didn't just say, here's a few tunes I've knocked out. See how, see how you get on with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it didn't work like that at all, you know. Or oh, this is uh, something about my life that I want you to connect with. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I also, it, it, um, I think creative is the most overused, overused adjective of our time. But aren't there two different types of musicians? You think, you know, Mark King of Level 42 surely sees himself differently than Laura Marling, I would imagine. I don't know. Laura Marling, I, I suspect, is a creative artist saying, here is the latest episode about my life. And uh, this is the music I've made. And if you like it, that's a bonus, but it's the music I want to put out. In a very kind of idealistic way, not that she isn't aware of the commercial success and otherwise of the, of the stuff she puts out. Mark King is, let's go out and, you know, keep the old big red beach ball of happiness in the air. Don't you think? Possibly. But don't you think they all, they all end up in the latter category? Because, you know, in your 50s, that's what you do. You are. You go out, you're a professional entertainer, you know. Whether you're a, the most serious jazz player or, you know, or a member of Buck's Fizz. You're a professional entertainer. You know, you, people pay to, to see you do your stuff. But creativity, people talk about it, sprinkle it around absolutely everywhere. And, 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 and in, in, in context, that it, it just doesn't seem relevant to me. Have you followed the story about Ellen? Ellen DeGeneres? No, so, what's that? Go on. <laughs> brings, together, brings together two things. So Ellen DeGeneres, enormously successful host of big American chat show, um, personality show, um, obviously somewhat constrained in the current situation, but, you know, 
has been doing this for years, you know, kind of America's sweetheart. And, uh, and you know, she, she has on a succession of, of equally beautiful, you know, Hollywood stars, people plugging records, books. Yeah, no, I've seen it, yeah. And, you know, everybody's lovely, everybody's really sweet. And, you know, and so, but some story emerged about a month ago that there is, that behind the scenes on the Ellen show, it's not as nice as you might think, you know, that there, there might be some sinister kind of, you know, arm twisting and, and power politics and bullying going on behind the screens of a top showbiz sensation. Well, what a revelation did that turn out to be? We've never come across that before, have we? We have. <laughs> arm twisting of who? Of the people on the show well, in order to, get to manipulate what they say? No, not some, not the people, not the guests, but the people who work on it, you know, all that kind of thing. You know, it, it's pretty, it, in, any, in any TV situation where it appears to be sweetness and light, it is not sweetness and light. It cannot be sweetness and light. No, no, it's a, together. a hard anyway. mechanical setup that ensures that you get the programme you want. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to argue about the rights and wrongs. I have no clue about the rights and wrongs. It may be completely innocent. But what's amazing is that everybody appears to be kind of backing away from it so quickly. They're now talking about the show being taken off. You know what I mean? Just on the basis of what somebody said about what goes on. And the network and everybody, because everybody's so terrified of being near anything that's got even a breath of scandal about it, that they just scurry away to another room. And you would have thought somebody would say, hang on, all right, now there may be problems here, we'll sort out the problems. But this is a very popular program, Ellen's a very popular entertainer, and we're going to back this, you know. They're clearly not doing this. They're running away from it. And I was just reading an account in the newspaper. How fantastically easy it is to would be to scupper anybody you wanted to by that's, just simply saying the seeds what, of a rumour. That's think? what because, you know, because yeah. you know nowadays that the broadcasting authorities or the media authorities, as soon as there's anything, will run a, run a mile. mile. Because they don't want anything to do with it at all. Yeah. That's the... You know, and that's cowardly. You know, I don't know what the rights and wrongs are, but you know, you you shouldn't have to throw away the baby with the bathwater, and you know, in in that kind of fashion. But then, I was just reading a thing in the paper where there's a quote from a friend of Ellen, which is, but <laughs> it might be made up by the journalist, I don't know, or a PR or something, and says Ellen's really upset because. She's always seen herself, and she's very, very proud of the show, and she, she thinks she's a really creative person. And you think to yourself, Ellen, Ellen. Now, Ellen DeGeneres, okay, you know, Mozart, Ellen DeGeneres, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't know. Uh, but Ellen DeGeneres is a very, very good popular entertainer. She's God, she's got her, had a fantastic career for a long, long time, and will no doubt continue to have one. Creative? Creative? Is no, not, sit there and go, that's not a creative. Brilliant that's brilliant idea. Being a chat show host is not creative, is it? It's you could be being extremely be good, good at a particular discipline. You, you know, can be which, good. And it's a great art, my God, but it's not it. creative. No. You're not waking up in the morning with a blank sheet of paper and by the end of the day having produced something that was never there in the first place. Because, you know, if you look at the great chat show hosts, you look at David Letterman, you look at Johnny Carson, if you look at Terry Wogan, would they have for one minute have described themselves creative? I don't think so. They would have thought, I'm good at this, and boy, I'm lucky to have this. You Absolutely. Because this is the format 
that that describes my talent absolutely perfectly. I can do this thing, and ninety nine percent of other people cannot do this thing. I'm bloody good at it. And why why is it just not enough to say I'm good at this? Yeah, you have to say I'm creative. You know, you know. I don't know. It's a, it's a different thing. Sorry, that's my. That's no, my I re- agree with you. I I mean, I wonder when people go across the idea of calling musicians artists too. When did that first happen? You know, was that the press that called that? And is it the press that, because the press tend to talk to people about, you know, the, the inner workings of their soul and the things that inspire the songs they wrote, does that give them the impression that they are, I don't know, that they're more than just entertainers? That now, I'll tell you what would be interesting to trace. If the libraries were open and you could go back and, and do this, and, you know, here's, here's a PhD idea for somebody who's doing the right kind of degree. When did the word... In, in kind of popular entertainment, when did it stop being artiste with an E and turn into artist? Artist, precisely. Because I think if you looked in the 20s and 30s and 40s, it would have been artiste, you know, which was a... Artiste a, simply meant somebody appeared on stage, wasn't it? Well, an artiste, you could be a variety artiste, couldn't yeah. you? You could be... And and and, and I think it's, it's very interesting, all the all these things that... that um, I'm very taken by the fact that the Beatles and Frank Sinatra would have regarded themselves as recording artists. Yeah. Rather than artists. Very different thing. Yeah. You know, and what what they were saying was, not that they probably didn't even say that openly, but if they had, they would have been they would have been saying, I'm really good at getting whatever is in me onto a record. That's what makes me exceptional, you know. And it doesn't mean I have greater, more profound thoughts than anybody else. It just means I'm an artist when it comes to recording. And and I think that's the, you know, people talk about the Beatles as songwriters and all these all these things. I was thinking, no, it's records. They're record makers. And the record, they're recording artists. That's yeah. what they're artists. But anyway, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, a performing musician or somebody, a tap dancer or anybody like that would be called an artiste, wouldn't they? A they variety would. artiste. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And um, whereas when it becomes artist, it makes people think Van Gogh. It makes yeah. people think Garrett. It makes people think I've suffered for my art. And now, now it's, it's your art. turn. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All that kind of thing. So I think but the old cliche is it was, it was always that idea that, that they have created the music they want to create, and if you like it, that's a bonus. But you know, yeah, which yeah. is I think is monstrously untrue because everybody's aware of what sells. Everybody, now, you know, no matter who they are, they're all looking at the sales of those records and reacting to them. If something well, doesn't sell very well, you do something about it. I suppose also, if you, if you, you know, if you make your record nowadays and you put it on Spotify. And you presumably, I don't know, do you have do you have a little you must have a, as a kind of musician, you must have some kind of dashboard as when you when you put these things on online. So you must be able to see exactly how many people have accessed yeah. your stream or whatever it is since the day before. Now, traditionally, when your record came out, grazed the top 40, then dropped out. You know, you're able to comfort yourself um, in the face of its failure by saying, well, record company never got behind it. Uh, there was a strike, came out the same week as the Pink Floyd album, you know, all those yeah, kind of things. It wasn't supported. 
Marketing can, let me down. You can't do that. When you, no. you get up every morning, you look at it, you go, oh, one person's had a look at it since yesterday. Yeah. And I so, better do something different. It's, yes, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing, you know. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. We've got some new Patreons, Mark, haven't we? We have, and please, uh, everybody, please, hats off and, and, and hurl them vigorously into the air for David Hancock. Very good. Good work, David. Yes, for Stephen Darlywall. Yes. For Joe Fowles, for Andrew Buchanan and David Proud. We're very <laughs> grateful. Thank you very much for supporting us. Fantastic. And we ought to mention, actually, there's, a, there's another podcast, Gold Out, at the moment. Number 36 has been re, re-promoted. And uh, it's really, really good. It's all about us talking about kind of ludicrous iPhone picture-taking at gigs, things that drive us mad, actually, that uh, other audience members do, uh, and how global warming has fueled a boom in rock festivals, so it's not all dead penguins. Uh, <laughs> the joy of vinyl, and why Oh What a Night by the Four Seasons is the best-sounding record on the radio. Okay, and, uh, and there's the Chrissy Hines story, Chrissy Hines and the foie gras. Oh well, it, so if you if you want to be reminded of that epic of uh, of um, of anecdotage, Mark Allen and his <laughs> anecdotage, that uh, you need to you need to sign up to be a Patreon supporter because that's yeah. the way you avail yourself of access to to all these riches. So. Do go and have a look at uh, patreon.com uh, slash word in your ear and you'll find out more and more details of, of all the ways that you can get involved and uh, get special access to events in the future. Lots more coming down the line. Patreon.com slash word in your ear. The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? Okay, Mark. Anniversaries. Well, it's the anniversary of the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Uh, wow. which was in August 55 years ago, 1965, which is an amazing thing, isn't it? The Beatles at Shea Stadium. It never fails to amaze me how it's story. It's nearly all of it on YouTube. I was watching some of it the other night. It's, it's fantastic. 56,000 people. On the bill, Brenda Holloway and the King Curtis Band, Cannibal and the Headhunters, Sounds Incorporated and the Young Rascals. And also you were mentioning, I think, Daniel Tashin of... Uh, of the Daniel Tashin's dad, Barry... Barry Tashin was in a group called The Remains from Boston, and they were on that tour, and they played Chase Stadium with the Beatles. What an incredible thing. Uh, all, yeah, although the Beatles went, they played Chase Stadium again, didn't they? They, they played did 66. It, they did it Maybe twice. they were on the 66. Yeah, one. maybe it's on the possible. 66. One. Yeah. Uh, but even but on 65, amazing, the Beatles, 65 did they do two shows? They didn't, did they? No, they did one show, one show. And they did, they paid $160,000. I don't really know that's a lot or a little. Equivalent of about $1.3 million now. Which, if you think about it, they only played for half an hour. And Dave, there's a lot to be said for that. Oh, uh, hour, 12 songs. What these, that? There were two these are songs. the songs. These are the songs. And three of them, not by the Beatles, in fact. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the amazing thing. You know, yeah. people, talk, people talk rather sniffily about covers bands. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. You know. But the, the Beatles, this is absolutely, you know, beyond the height of Beatlemania. This, they were the biggest thing in the world. These are the songs that they played at Shea Stadium. Twist and Shout, which, of course, is not by them. It's, uh, it's you know, Isley Brothers, you know, Phil Medley, Burt Russell. She's a Woman, which was the B-side of I, I Feel Fine. Yeah, B-side, yeah. And, um, yeah, and then they played not I Feel Fine. Not McCartney's Finest Hour as a lyricist. No. <laughs> she's no peasant. <laughs> Sorry. I know that anyway. Yeah. Uh, then, then I feel fine. Then Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Larry Not Williams. Not one of theirs. Yeah. Which have been playing since Hamburg, probably. 
ticket to ride. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Come on down, Carl Perkins, for a few more royalties. You know, yeah. that's, that's not one of those. Can't Buy Me Love obviously is. And then they play the only song that they played off their new album, which had just come out, which is Beatles for Sale. They play Babies in Black. Which oh, no, they play choice. Play... It's a very odd choice because that's a kind of slow dirge like waltz, isn't it? I mean, it's a brilliant vocal performance and all that, but it's hardly going to set a baseball stadium on fire. But yeah, so then they played Act Naturally, which was also on. Uh, no, or is it? I can't remember. I think it is, old? but it's not one of theirs. Isn't it? It's not yeah. one of theirs. It's an old country song. Hard Day's Night, Help, and then, and then finish with I'm Down, which is. Course, a master, which is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that, anybody listening who hasn't seen it, go and have a look on YouTube. It is brilliant. And by then, they're just giddy, they're high with how successful it's been. They can't believe the absurdity of it. They're just, they're actually in this. John and, and, and George just make each other laugh throughout the entire thing. John plays an entire solo on his keyboard with his elbow. Oh, he used to oh, do that. Yeah, I remember that tour. Fantastic. Because just... on, that, on that tour, actually, this is where they wore those kind of Nehru jackets. Nehru jackets. Right? They had the little sheriff badges on, the Wells Fargo sheriff badges. Oh, right, of yeah, course. Yeah. And because uh, on that same tour, <laughs> this is... This is classic. Or it must be the same summer or something. They played, I think I'm right in saying, the ABC Night Out, which was an ITV programme. And ITV used to do, used to broadcast variety shows from seaside towns up and down England. And uh, and I'm pretty sure they did the, the, the ABC Night Out from Blackpool on that same tour, where they played some of the same songs, and he did that same did thing that, yeah. with his elbow, and they're wearing just the same suits. <laughs> so, you know, there was There's no a idea. great bit of film of them, uh, again, this little clip, you can see them backstage just before they go on. Amazing that they're still being filmed just before they go on. And they talk about how, you know, they get really nervous and it's all fine when they go on stage and they get the point where they just feel like going to sleep about half an hour beforehand, which I can understand. It was that kind of terrible, intense nerves. But then McCartney says, actually, we get less nervous at shows like this because... Because, you know, it's smaller shows where people can actually hear what you're playing. You get where he said, but people can't hear. And that's the absurdity of it. Now that they can't see the Beatles, really. There are no big screens in those days. And they can't hear them because they're using the old PA system and little tiny amps and things like that. So the whole exercise is just a, a, a confirmation that the group you like kind of actually exists. Really. And that you've been there with And them. you were there with them, you know. There's so many interesting things about it. The other is Ed Sullivan's intro. Ed Sullivan says... Um, he says, uh, he says, now, ladies and gentlemen, honoured by their country, decorated by their queen, and loved here in America, here are the Beatles, which is pretty much exactly what he said in the Ed Sullivan show, actually, wasn't it, in 1964? And I love that idea that, you know, that what, what they're approving of is the idea that these rock and roll rebels are actually responsible, upright uh, members of society. They're not a threat to the fabric of, uh, of, of our morals, you know. You know, it's well, a very unusual thing. And whereas also at the time, you know, the Rolling Stones had been singled out as being the bad boys, hadn't they? The Rolling Stones yeah. who had already had some success in America with the kind of, uh, you know, they were the kind of working class oiks, which must have irritated the Beatles, who really were working class. Yeah, compared yeah, the, to me, the, Ameri you know. the American misreading of English class via know, the British totally. English is, 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 you know, a whole subject in itself. Yeah. Um, no, it's, a, it's extraordinary to... Um, it's extraordinary to reflect. So that's so. What what are we saying? That's that's more than how many years ago? Is this? Five years ago. Fifty. Incredible. Yeah, the it's what invented pretty much invented the stadium circuits. Yeah, absolutely. They broke so many records, and that was another one.
Yeah. But look, we ought to just, we ought to get in a mention for the Great Alan Parker. Don't you think? Yes. Very yeah. sad. You came to Cure Awards once. I can remember introducing him to Roger Daltrey. And, but did uh, he? Well, did they? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, what uh, was he doing there? Did I can't remember. I've simply completely forgotten. No, no, he didn't win something. I think he was presenting something. I would have, I I would have looked it up. I can't remember, but he was there. Well, he directed The Wall, didn't he? He did The Wall. He did Bugsy Malone. And he did and he did Fame, which I think was incredibly influential. I may be oh, definitely. wrong, but if you think about Fame, it came out in 1980, didn't it? And that whole world, that look of the kind of leotards and the knee socks and the big hair, Yes. You know, I look back at it now, you know, that was 1980. Now, you and I were on Smash Hits in 1981. You launched just 17 in about 1983, I think. And actually that world, you know, that world of people, people like Banana Rama, there's a certain look that I think was very influenced by fame. And there was a certain, you know, a certain world that was, was opened up for people like Madonna, particularly, who was really, yes. really huge around 1981, 1982. Yeah. The idea that girl with, with, with dance act, pop dance act, was suddenly going to take off. That really fitted. And she, you know, that started traditionally went right through, uh, you know, through, um, you know, the Spice Girls to um, right up till now, don't you think? Those kind of dance oh, exactly. routine girls, you know. Well, it's TV, TV talent shows, isn't it? Yeah, they're all, Lady they're all, they're seems all to somehow grounded some... in the idea of the Fame Academy and all that kind of Completely. Play. Yeah. Uh, and because now there are Fame Academies. That, that was based on the High School of Performing Arts in New York, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right. My, the, I, I've seen quite a number of Alan Parker films, and uh, you know they're all admirable in their way. But I have such a special place in my heart for Bugsy Malone. Oh yes, good. I do think is is genuinely a kind of. The more you look at it now, the the more remarkable it seems. It was the first you know feature film he made. He was a commercials director, and he just had this idea for making a film which is kind of a spoof of kind of Warner Brothers gangster films of the 30s. And it was a musical. Yeah. And, and the parts were played by kids. And, uh, you know... Inspired people, by, by a chorus line? Was that right? I think it no, was. No, not a chorus. No, it was inspired by... No, if you look at it... It's, oh, no, sorry, no, no, sorry, sorry. It's, completely it's Jimmy Cagney yeah. kind of gangster films yeah. and stuff like that. But you know, hard-boiled dialogue and, you know, the, the shooters, the machine guns are replaced by splurge guns that fire kind of cream pies at, at people. And uh, we'll go and look at it now, and you wouldn't even be allowed to think it nowadays. You couldn't, you couldn't make that film nowadays for all kinds of, you know, all kinds of reasons that are make you reflect more on nowadays than the past, because it's a perfectly innocent wonderful, beautiful film that by any kind of logical analysis didn't ought to work at all, but it just does. And the thing, the two things that make it work, one is Alan Parker's fabulous direction. He's just belief in the idea, the kind of warmth of the thing. And the other thing is, God bless him, Paul Williams' soundtrack, the songs from Bugsy Malone, which were all written and mainly performed by the great Paul Williams. You know, so you want to be a, a boxer, you know, all, the, all all those kind of tunes, you know. We could have been anything that we wanted to be, but we decided we're the best at being bad. All yeah, those yeah. hilarious lyrics, wonderful tunes, absolutely brilliant. And all by kids. Incredible. And incredible uh, yeah, performances by them. It, it's a wonderful thing. So I think we're going to, 
you know, as a, as a fond uh, tribute to, uh, to Alan Parker and also a tip of the hat to the great Paul Williams. Let's play out with a bit of Bugsy Malone. 